Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. We're going to dive right into this. This is my, I don't know, my fourth presentation on Miriam of Migdal as the betrothed of Mashiach. And, you know, this is one of those things where, unfortunately, this is going to go into YouTube. Somebody's going to stumble upon this. They're going to watch it, not see any of the other stuff. They're going to make some sort of snark comment, uh, you know, something that I probably already covered or whatever. This is unfortunately this is one of those presentations tonight that if you haven't seen the earlier ones, this may not make a lot of sense what I'll be talking about. On the plus side, if you have been following along, even just you know, just uh, not even you know, just generally following along, uh, a lot's going to come together tonight. Now, I will be covering some old material as well. This is one of the reasons it's so long, and I have learned that I cannot just assume that everyone knows what I'm talking about. So sometimes when I cover old material, uh, just kind of hang in there if you've been through it before. You know why I'm doing it, because uh, if I just throw a, a phrase or two out there and expect you guys to know two or three hours of previous material, that somebody's going to come on and just, like, you know, shoot it down. So here we go. Miriam Migdal betrothed the Mashiach, and uh, this is several. This is the most expansive uh, presentation I've done since starting this. There's quite a few sections. They're all loosely based on each other, but they all fill in the greater picture. So this is the Kinsman Redeemer Lessons Learned from Ruth. And we were just talking about how to pronounce names, and I will probably massacre this. Uh, I guess Ra'oth? Roth? Ra'oth? I don't know. But I'll just probably just call her Ruth because I don't know how to pronounce R-O-T-H. Nearly every canonical gospel that we looked at involving the Nard episode, then there you go right there. I mean, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're going to have to go back and, and read that for yourself or listen to it. Uh, involving the Nard episode describes the mysterious woman as anointing the head of Yahusha with a costly fragrance. But that is all. It takes Yochanan, that would be John, to give her a name. But then there is another important detail to be found exclusively in his gospel as well. None of the other writers seemed remotely interested in the part where Miriam washes Yahusha's feet with her hair. To some of you, that is still proof that I am making a mountain out of a molehill. Well, then perhaps you will better understand why Yochanan would recount that little detail when I finally get around to addressing the person who he was sourcing his information from. But that will not happen until a little later down the road. Luckily, we'll be covering that tonight. One thing at a time. I have already presented you with the Song of Shaloma connection, but now with the foot of Mashiach, we have a Ruth comparison, which requires our tending. And guess what? Both actions regard marriage. So this will be a short reading here from the book of Ruth. Chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens you were? Behold, he windows barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash yourself therefore, or wash yourself thereof, and anoint you, and, pour, and put your raiment upon you, and get you down to the floor. But make not yourself known unto the man, until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall mark the place where he shall lie, and you shall go in, and uncover his feet, and lay down, and he will tell you what you shall do. And she said unto her, uh, uh, Ruth said to Naomi, And that you say unto me, I will do. 
And she went down into the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the sheaf. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your handmaid, for you are a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be you of Yahuwah, my daughter, for you have showed more kindness in the later end than at the beginning, inasmuch as you followed not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to you all that you require, for all the city of my people do know that you are a virtuous woman. It's kind of interesting. It's like uh, he was doing some background checks on her there because he, he was going around asking about her and they were all saying she's a virtuous woman. There is more to the story, obviously, and most of you know what the ending entails, though the gist of it has been given. Ruth needed a kinsman redeemer and Naomi just so happened to have a plan. I highlighted the instructions given to her. The scene plays out a whole lot like the Miriam episode, does it not? Ruth was to slip in unannounced and present herself at the feet of the man whom she wished to marry, which is what I'm suggesting Miriam did. The feet is the important detail in all of this. Boaz woke up during the night because his feet were exposed, cold due to the fact that the temperature had dropped. The scene is the threshing floor, telling us they were outside. Ruth would have been lying there shivering, des desperate for warmth. You figure her teeth were chattering when telling Boaz her name. It wasn't just warmth that she was after, though. In pulling back the garment and exposing his feet, she was asking that he spread his garment over her, thereby assuming responsibility for her care. If you need this spilled out for you, she was seeking a husband. But also in doing so, she was invoking the Torah. And so we see this played out in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 10. And it says this, If if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the woman of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her man's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to be his woman and perform the duty of a man's brother unto her. It's so interesting. I was just reading to my family Onan's sin today. And that's uh, covering this as well. And it shall be that, that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed in the name of her brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Yasharel. And if the man like not to take his brother's woman, and then let his brother's woman go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My man's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Yasharel. He will not perform the duty of my man's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I'd like not to take her, then shall his brother's woman come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto this, that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Yasharel, the house of him that has his shoe loosed. Whenever the scenario should arise that a Hebrew man dies, leaving his woman without a child, it is the duty of the next of kin to take her in and sire an heir on his behalf. And we looked at some um, how this plays out in other areas in the Miriam of Migdal series. And look at how the feet play into it. The man who denies his duty to the widow is said is to have his shoe removed from off his foot in the presence of the elders. He is even to be given the name that lets everyone know 
He is the house of one whose shoe has been loosed. And who wants that? Ruth may not have known every implication, being a woman of Moab, but Naomi was a Yehud. Her instructions that Ruth undress Boaz's feet were to likely remind him that he too would be a household of the loosed shoe, should he not perform his duty to Yahuwah and country and all that in covering the girl under his blanket. Supposing you're intimately aware with the Ruth storyline, then you will recall that she had a next-in-line kinsman redeemer through Naomi, her mother-in-law, and it wasn't Boaz. Boaz had no legal rights at that moment. First and foremost, he had to go about seeking that person out. Upon finding his whereabouts at the city gate, her kinsman redeemer rejected the command in Deuteronomy and in front of the elders on the basis that his own inheritance would be marred should he go through with it. Which, by the way, that's Deuteronomy doesn't give you that excuse. We are not told if he had his shoe removed, but his lack of love most certainly freed Boaz to go through with it. The entire story is a metaphor for Mashiach's love for his bride, and everybody knows it. What is more, the feet which Miriam anointed with her hair is almost undoubtedly cross-referenced with this account. It's rather difficult in seeing it. Even the response which Yahusha offers to Miriam seems to reflect Boaz with Ruth. According to Boaz, Ruth had shown him greater kindness in the end rather than the beginning, choosing him rather than younger men, though again the narrative is a match with Miriam. Just so you know, I don't always write these papers in order. I had, a, uh, I had considered wedging the Ruth segment between the alabaster jar and wedding at Cana sections. There you go. If don't even know what I'm talking about. You need to go back and look at those. Near the beginning of this report, so that it fill in the heels of Song of Shaloma, it would seem appropriate there. But then I would be uh, somewhat handicapped that early on in talking about her desperate need for a kinsman redeemer. When Miriam addressed the feet of Yahusha, her, her family was present. Her brother and her sister and probably her father were all in the room. She needed a protector and had none. We already covered that, where she was cast out. Her father was done with her. She had no protector. So when she went to, to uh, anoint his feet with her hair, I think that's what she was doing, uh, precisely as Ruth was doing. A portrait is emerging in this investigation. Within that frame, there are seemingly two layers to the Miriam of Migdal episode. To some, they will seem contradictory. Though to me, they scream of the love of Mashiach for his bride. On one hand, I've already shown you that the anointing of Nard derives from the King of Shaloma playbook that would come from the Song of Solomons. That's when I think Yahusha and Miriam may have initiated their marriage vows on that very night, if we're, if we're to go by Song of Solomon. Throughout the Passion Week and afterwards, one hardly needs to read between the lines to see that they had been intimate together. But then the anointing of his foot speaks of Miriam not having a kinsman redeemer. The book of the Nazarene further establishes that likelihood. Hmm. I thought they were betrothed by this point, so what gives? Once again, the book of the Nazarene offers us a clue. I'm thinking they were betrothed until the Roman centurion entered the picture and then they weren't. Whereupon the wedding was canceled. And I do apologize if you didn't follow this before. Perhaps she ran off with him, the, the Roman centurion. Yochanan may not record that plot line, 
but the woman caught in adultery suffices. Between the two, we are handed a scenario which would complement the prophet Husha or Hosea. And that's the only time I'm going to mention that tonight, if you guys caught that, that who did Hosea go to? A whoring bride. Okay? And I'm not saying that Mary Magdalene was a whore by any means. Don't think I'm saying that. But what happened to Judah 40 years later after this? Yeah, I mean, Jerusalem was destroyed. So I'm seeing some comparisons here between Hosea and what's happening with Mary Magdal and Yahusha. Another likelihood is that she was coerced or even raped uh, by the Roman guard, but then made the best of it by choosing love, which is the explanation that she offered Mashiach in, in the book of the Nazarene. The centurion had, after all, taken her virginity. Rape was common in that era and would provide an explanation as to why it was stated that she had done nothing wrong, though her father had shunned her. Afterwards, she may have made some poor decisions, but then, as we read in Nazarene, an entire year had transpired without sin of this nature, without any kind of sexual sin. She had set herself apart for Yahusha, and he was once more willing to accept her. Their marriage was back on again. And we'll, um, I'll cover more of that tonight about the fact that she set herself aside for a year and what that means. All right, the next... Uh, interconnected section. Actually, this one is loosely connected, but this one will tie in with the rest. Becoming Man. Ooh, how scandalous. Miriam's Gospel of Thomas Controversy. We're on page six if you need to catch up, and I'm drinking some coffee. Speaking of Gnostic Gospels, and this section follows behind uh, some Gnostic talk. Ooh, some Gnostic talk. I love some Gnostic talk. Speaking of Gnostic Gospels, the most controversial line in the Gospel of Taom, though you would know it as Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas, happens to be Kepha's trash talk towards Miriam of Migdol, of all people, because she is a woman, you know, the cause of human evil and woe, L-O-L. In a moment, I will show you that actually right now the, <laughs> the cause of human woe is men becoming women. Uh, that's a whole different uh, uh, discussion right there. That is the cause of our present day woe. So I guess you could say women are still the cause of woe in this world. In a moment, I will show you the quote that has nearly everyone decrying the gospel in a hissy fit. It is my suspicion that a final line is missing, a line which, if rediscovered, will return the narrative to autopilot rather than its climatic last second tailspin. Yes, tailspin. Because the rumors are true and something is not quite right about the concluding dialogue between Kepha and Yahusha. That, might, that, may, that may seem a little too convenient for you uh, that I would claim something is omitted when it doesn't fall in my favor. In actuality, it is the entire book which denounces the final passage, not me. You will hopefully see what I mean hereafter. So this comes from the Gospel of Thomas, 114. And uh, I will remind you, this is the final line, the closing uh, paragraph of the book. Shimon Kepha said to them, Let Miriam go away from us, for, a woman, for women are not worthy of life. And he's talking about Miriam of Migdal. Yahushua said, Look, I will draw her in so as to make her male. Dun, dun, dun. So that she too may, be coming, may become a living male ruach. What? Similar to you. But I say to you, every woman who makes herself male 
will enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of Taom, Thomas 114. Will somebody please tell me what has just happened? The hot-headed Kifa involves a very common first-century attitude towards women regarding their standing status in society, as well as eternity, and Yahusha actually agrees with him. Huh? Apparently, Miriam of Migdal and every other woman in his story will never have a chance at the kingdom unless they first grow a pair. What makes the quote even more off-base is that Yahushua's response is completely against his character and that he fails to challenge worldly convention when it is pitched his way. That is not the Mashiach whom I've come to know. He should have turned the table upon Kepha, but that is not what happened. The book just ends like that. Miriam of Victor is thrown under the bus. With a drop of the microphone, we are all expected to believe heaven will be filled with nothing but dudes. Dudes who were successful in the alchemical transformation of their souls after having once worn pretty dresses and given birth to babies. No wonder why so many of the hissy fit people have had their way in ostracizing Taon with those 10-foot poles that they hand out in seminary. It may in fact be the most taboo book of the dozens upon dozens of other extra-canonical contenders circulating among the scripture circuit, mainly because of the passage which I have just shown you, this one right here. This is the passage where they tell you, don't read the book because of this. Supposing the concluding line in Taom is in any way true, then Yahusha has now changed his mind from what was earlier stated in the same book. You have to go back to uh, number 22, Lajian 22, to learn of his aforementioned opinion. And this is what he says in, number, in chapter 22, or saying, uh, oracle saying 22. Yahushua saw some infants being nursed at the breast. He said to his disciples, these nursing infants are like those who enter the kingdom. The disciples asked him, then shall we become as infants to enter into the kingdom? They always have kind of funny responses. Yahushua answered them, When you make the two into one, when you make the inner like the outer and the high like the low, when you make male and female into a single one, so that the male is not male and the female is not female, when you have eyes in your eyes, a hand in your hand, a foot in your foot, and an icon in your icon, then you will enter into the kingdom. Sounds complicated. Got to have a lot of things and things. See what I mean? To conclude that a kingdom citizenship would require a sex change from marrying of Migdol uh, contradicts what has already been laid out here. I suspect the statement involving male and female being made into a single one is reminiscent of what has been covered earlier as it pertains to the marriage of Ruakoth. I think that was my last presentation I gave on Mary Magdalene, if you need a, refer a reference on that. No reason to go over that again. But then making the male and the female into a single one is also speaking of those who are capable of losing their identity completely, which is not the same thing as saying only females should sacrifice their being. No, it is a two-way street. At the risk of completely missing the mark, the most simplest way of saying this is that the kingdom refuses to glorify one gender over the other. Though now that I'm thinking about it, that is far too simple of an explanation to be bullseye accurate, because it is not simply patri uh, patriarchal society which is being challenged. 
to help clarify, Yahushua says the person who enters the kingdom will have discovered the eye within the eye. What does he mean by that? And is it a new age thing? He is saying you will see at last. To enter the kingdom, you have to see at last. The eye within the eye. And having a hand and a hand, you will be able to give and receive with that single hand. And having a foot in your foot, you will know the way. We were talking about that beforehand, how, how the Torah brings this clarity of just like you, this shalom and peace. Like you've arrived, you, you know the way now. You know the directions to get there. It's been given to us in the, the first five books of the Bible that all of our pastors tell us to ignore and not, not read. Not, not to adhere to. Perhaps this is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, when claiming the church is the what? The body of Mashiach, with Mashiach being the head. It is one thing, however, to have a head knowledge of that well-known fact, and quite another to gain the insight of a personal gnosis, and I just went there, a personal gnosis which cannot be explained They'll only be experienced. The personal gnosis of being the hands and the feet of Mashiach. That's something you can have a head knowledge of, uh, but doesn't mean you've experienced it. And speaking of Paul, didn't he also say, in Mashiach there is neither male nor female? I checked. He did. The line comes from Galatians, and here's how it reads. For ye are all the children of Elohim by faith in Mashiach, Yehusha. For as many of you as have been baptized into Mashiach have put on Mashiach. There is neither Yehudi nor Yavani, uh, Greek, neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. Dun, dun, dun. For ye are all one in Yehusha HaMashiach. And if ye belong to Mashiach, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3, 26 through 29. How is it that Paul always gets off the hook? He straight up says there is neither male nor female in Mashiach's kingdom. Didn't we just read Yahushua making the same claim in the Gospel of Thomas? He most certainly did. Even the one phrasing is conveyed. Paul is often criticized for not quoting from the Gospels if they even existed in circulation at that time, and I don't think they did. Therefore, he couldn't quote from something that wasn't in circulation. But here we have one contender. Taom, uh, or Thomas, is often considered to be the first written gospel. And I'm thinking that may be true. The reason being is that the way uh, the gospel of Thomas is written is like Thomas is literally just writing, walking around with a, with a scratch pad and just like scribbling down things that he's saying. And he's like, here you go. Here's the sayings of Yahushua. Uh, it would have come out right away. Um, and it's funny because the gospel of the Nazarene actually uh, notes that there were actually people following him around writing his sayings. So that's really interesting. What happened to all those uh, notepads? Who knows? Important to this context is the mystery rites of baptism, which Paul covers. The death and resurrection is symbolized, uh, symbolizes involves our very identity as a new person. There was a popular mantra among the Yahudim of that era claiming, thank Elohim, I'm not goy, woman, or slave, which appears to be the sentiments that Kepha held in Teom 114. Decades later, Paul is most likely rebu uh, uh, rebutting his own 
former belief, as well as those from among the Parashim, the Pharisees, contemporaries, when stating there is neither Yahudi nor Greek, male nor female, among the congregation of those who have risen again with Mashiach. He's, he's probably uh, rebutting that very line. Thank Elohim, I'm not goy, woman, or slave. Afterwards, to claim one is a Gentile is the state he or she has never crossed over. Don't do that. Don't go around saying you're a, a goyim, a Gentile. Don't that that from a biblical biblical worldview, that's a naughty no-no. I mean, literally, you have not crossed over. You want to be a Hebrew. Only the seed of Abraham through his spiritual offspring, Yitchak, can be found on the other side, the Hebrews. The becoming one aspect of the male and female relationship can further be explored in the waters of Hebrew cosmology. But she didn't think we'd have some flat earth talk tonight. Well, here it is, which is why very few seem to be aware of it. The passage I am thinking of derives from Enoch, and this is what it says. In those days shall punishment go forth from Yahuwah, Sivaoth, uh, Yahuwah of hosts, and the receptacles of water which are above the heavens shall be opened, and the fountains likewise which are under the heavens and under the earth. All the waters which are in the heavens and above them shall be mixed together. The water which is above heaven shall be the male, and the waters which is under the, the earth shall be the female. And all shall be destroyed who dwell upon earth and who dwell under the extremities of heaven. Nearly everyone concludes that Adam and Chua were the first male and female component of creation to be separated from the other, when in fact, the male waters had already been parted from the female waters on the second day of creation. It happened when the Ruach of the firmament divided them. You've heard it said how the floodwaters killed every living nefesh or soul with the Ruach of life, but when was the last time that somebody told you it was the male waters becoming united with his female counterpart when judgment was enacted. Well, that's why I'm here to give you the news. The earth is quite literally a womb for the gestation of souls, and it is only through a second birth that we can experience the connection between the earth and heaven, the feminine and the masculine. Which is to say, the transformation of the female into the male involves dying to the earth below and then resurrecting into the heavenly and imperishable. And if a lot of you guys don't know, that, that's what I think it means to be born again. Um, I do believe that the resurrection happens within us here first. Uh, but, you know, we, we talked about becoming born again, but the actual born again moment is our, uh, our resurrection into uh, beyond the womb of the earth the firmament up into past the, the masculine waters above. So I don't want you to, that to pass you by, right? To get to the heavens above, you go through the masculine waters. And all the waters down here on the earth are feminine, according to Enoch. There is a Gnostic word which more often than not fails to be properly translated into these conversations. Anthropos is the Greek for human. In modern terms, person would probably be employing the wrong word. With all the transgender identity confusion of our own era, era, which is a clear abomination to Yahuwah in Deuteronomy 22.5, please do not confuse that with what I am saying. Person has become the standard to describe in a broad legal sense a corporate entity. The perverse will be perverse, twisting scripture to their liking, and there's nothing I can do about that. Contrarily, to be anthropos 
is to gain the gnosis of the human experience in its fullest term, which is to be restored once more to the image of Elohim. And so getting back once more to Teom 114, because it kind of feels like we've strayed from there, but I'm going through all this to explain it. What Yahushua is doing is turning the table back upon Kepha. Though Kepha is outing his jealousy of Miriam of Migdal when claiming that a woman is not worthy of Mashiach's love and affection, Mashiach is placing the tension right back upon Kepha. Yahushua is directing us towards the Anthropos experience. In saying that she will become fully human, the following deduction should have Kepha pondering, will he become fully human? And then what about myself and you, the reader? The Gospel of Thomas ends with that tension upon all of us. It's, it's the kingdom of heaven. It's not about woman or man and who is greater and who's going to be on top at the end. It's, it's are you going to be human? Because if you cannot become fully human, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, the next part here, uh, I think we're on page 12. The disciple whom Yahushua loved. Now, I'll probably explain this in here, but I'm just going to lay this out here now. I will, uh, I, I will admit that uh, claiming Miriam of Migdal is the disciple whom Yahushua loved has one or two problems, and I will go through those. So if someone is going to stick me to it and go, I don't care what you say, Noel, uh, she is not the disciple whom Yahushua loved, I'll be like, fine, okay, she's not. But don't use this to uh, destroy the entire argument of all the points I've brought up. And I've noticed people do that. People go for the weakest point, and they will attack that and as if that deals with everything else, right? They don't have to deal with anything else because they went for your Achilles heel. Well, I'm about to present you the Achilles heel, though I think that this is what I'm going to say is accurate, all right? The disciple whom Yahushua loved. Most of you will tell me it's John, and I don't blame you. Not so long ago, I too had identified Yochanan. It's not him, though. The Talmud, oh, the disciple whom Yahushua loved, is somebody by another name, and I'll show you why I've recently come to that conclusion. I'm not saying that individual is Miriam of Migdal, but with all we've been through, I think she's a good contender. She's, she's the best contender. As far as I'm concerned, she's the only contender, unless if someone else can be identified. I mean, think about it. The only place in canonical scripture where the Talmudim whom Yahushua loved is mentioned is the Bezorah of Yochanan. That would be your first tip-off. Likewise, much of the information given to us regarding the betrothal of the Mashiach derived from Yochanan in the first place, the wedding at Cana of Galilee, the woman caught in adultery, the raising of Eliezer, that would be Lazarus, from the dead. Miriam is identified as the woman with the spike nard and given a private audience with Yahushua at the tomb. The narrative is either Miriam or somebody very closely associated with her. And everything I just mentioned, those are not mentioned in any other gospel. It all comes from where Yochanan is sourcing his information from, from a different person. The mysterious Talmud is given four mentions in Yochanan. Aside from those examples, which I, am to, which I aim to give, many an objection will come my way when naming Miriam a Talmudim, and there, uh, and there were supposedly only 12 of them, none of which were women. Is that so? What of the 70? Were they not Talmudim as well? 
Mashiach had many disciples surrounding him, though we are ever only given a dozen in most depictions. Not so in the book of the Nazarene. So this is what it says in chapter 6, verse 12. Being so poorly received in the town where he had been brought up, Yahushua went out around the villages, choosing 12 apostles from among his Talmudim. He sent them away in Paris to deal with many things caused by the intrusion of evil. It's not like the number of disciples were capped off once 12 dudes started to follow him around. The 12 we know about were hand-selected from a much larger group of Talmudim. How many are we talking about in total? I haven't the faintest clue. If I had to guess, though, I would give a liberal estimate far higher than 70. We're talking in the hundreds. So consider. This again comes from the book of the Nazarene. Yahushua said, So you find difficulty in accepting what I say. Suppose you could see me communicating with my place of origin. Would you believe then? But the eyes of the flesh cannot see things intended only for the eyes of the Ruach. Only the Ruach contains the power of life, and the flesh of itself can see or do nothing. The words I have spoken concern only the life-holding Ruach, and I have not referred to worldly matters. But still, you do not understand. I know you are perplexed and confused by my teachings. That is why I said something greater must speak internally to incline you towards me. That would be the human experience, I believe. From this day, many Talmudim and followers no longer heeded him. The scene before us takes place after Yahushua has selected the twelve as apostles. They're clearly not the ones abandoning him, the twelve. It's not the seventy either, because they were sent off on a missionary journey. Yahushua's teachings doubled as a winnowing fork, separating the chaff from the grain. He wasn't through yet, though. Skipping ahead another couple of chapters, and we read the following. Some days later, Yahushua was in another place with about 60 Talmudim. So this isn't the 70. One of whom said to him, There is Yahushua, the, the faster, who claims to be the Mashiach of Elohim, and Yosef, who proclaims deliverance by the sword, while many say the Enlightener and Deliverer are two men. The gale of words makes it difficult to get a bearing on the harbor entrance. Yahushua said, Things are changing, and many alive today will live to see a different world. I come to set men free by removing the shackles of ignorance and to deliver them from evil and from themselves. Hearing this, many of the Talmudim left. And Yahushua said to those who remained behind, uh, beside him, Do you also wish to go your way? Kepha answered, For all, Master... Your teachings excel those of others, for they carry the hope of eternal life. We believe you to be the chosen messenger of Yahuwah who speaks with his voice. We accept what you say because it responds to the yearnings of our heart. I love that line. We accept what you say because it responds to the yearnings of our hearts. Yahushua said, we all make mistakes. And though I have chosen un unwisely with others... I have not been mistaken with you. That is so interesting to hear uh, Messiah say there that he has chosen unwisely with others. You can make of that what you will. And so I rest my case. Far more Talmudim surrounded Mashiach than what we are normally led to imagine. Yes, there were the 12, but only because many are called and few are chosen. Here we can read of 60 in rank and a great deal many of them went off to live their lives in the world though only after the far greater number of Talmudim split a chapter or two earlier. The road is indeed narrow. FYI, Miriam of Migdal is named as a Talmudim. I could have just steamrolled right over these other passenger, uh, passages in accrediting her, 
But then somebody in the comments section would claim it wasn't possible since she's not listed among the 12 or the 70 and also because she's a woman. You see, covering my bases is necessary. I am always trying to think ahead of the rebuttals and have learned the hard way. Well, here we read in the Gospel of Peter once. I love the Gospel of Peter. It's a short read, so good. And at dawn upon Adonai's day, Miriam of Migdal, a Talmudi of Adonai, fearing because of the Yahudim, since they were burning with wrath and had had not done at Adonai's sepulcher the things which women are wont to do for those that die and for those that are beloved by them. She took her friends with her and came to the sepulcher where he was laid. There she is, Miriam of Migdal, Talmudi of Mashiach. Can't say she's not one of them now. And what is she doing? She is visiting the tomb of a dead man, precisely as his grieving woman would. Did I mention how many times she visited the tomb before the resurrection announcement? A, whoop, a whopping three times. You will argue and claim it doesn't say widow. Well, then look at what it does happen to lay out in the open. Up until that moment, she was not capable of visiting the sepulcher as one who was beloved of the dead person. Did it just say what I think it said? In one single passage, we not only have Miriam listed as a disciple of Mashiach, but she is also the individual who is loved by him. I won't say the case is closed per se, but I'm thinking we have our winner. The reason I didn't outright give her the medal from the get-go is because I also admit there is one noticeable complication to the Miriam of Megdol theory, from what I can tell. You probably already know what the blemish is. The rest of you will have to wait in the tension of the moment until it arrives. Again, all four canonical references to the Talmudim whom Yahushua loved derives from one gospel, and that's your canon. I will be accused of beating around the bush if I don't get to them soon, so let's do that. The first instant occurs at the Last Supper. Before venturing forward, I will remind you once more that I have never read nor viewed Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code beforehand, nor at any time during the writing process, despite the temptation to do so. This is an independent investigation far removed from the Holy Grail crowd, and I don't wish my conclusions to be unnecessarily contaminated by theirs. That moment will surely come, the viewing party, though not until I have dotted and crossed every jot and tittle. I am, however, informed that a crucial clue to the unraveling plot involves the Last Supper painted by Leonardo and the identity of the person forming the V to Mashiach's right. I will have you know that the very effeminate John was a point of discussion during my third grade field trip to Forest Lawn, and that was a Christian school. Why they, uh, why they thought a cemetery was a good idea is anybody's educated guess for a field trip. Our teachers scolded us for the suggestion of claiming that John looked effeminate. I bring it up merely because many children have all noticed the same thing over the years. Children see through things that adults don't. And, you know, adults have to uh, reorient, re-educate children to not see these things. That being said, I'm not in the least concerned whether or not Da Vinci believed the person on Mashiach's right to be Miriam or, or Yochanan. Whatever he believed is irrelevant. Painting a woman into the frame doesn't prove Yahushua was married, just as certainly as a man proves he wasn't. The only thing it reminds us of is that others in history came to the same conclusions as some of us. Whoop-de-doo! 
Perhaps I'm speaking out of ignorance, and what I really need to do is read the book or watch the movie. The irony in the painting is that the one person who is supposed to be leaning upon Yahusha's bosom isn't. Though I believe I can still recall the explanation given to me in the third grade, the, the late 80s, if you must know, and the person is listening to Kifa's question, wanting to know who the betrayer would be. Well, enough of Leonardo. Here's a scene as given to us in Yochanan. Now there was leaning on Yahusha's bosom one of his Talmudim, whom Yahusha loved. Shimon Kifa therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spoke. And uh, he then, lying on Yahusha's breast, said unto him, Adonai, who is it? Now, I need to point out, I don't think I wrote this in here, unfortunately, that the him, he, here is all uh, bias of the uh, translators. It could very well be a she. They just assume it's a he, they see a he, they write a he. I have always found the idea that Yochanan would rest his head upon the bosom of Yahusha to be a strange one for sure. Among many, the mental image has received enough attention to raise a few eyebrows. If you need this spelled out for you, then there have been plenty of beeps from uh, beeps alerts from homosexual radar. I think I unfortunately I kind of missed up that joke. I put it in the wrong order, but plenty of beep, beep, beeps going off from the, the homosexual radar. Understand that's not what I'm claiming. Others have, not me though. All right. So even if this is John, I, 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 and I don't think it is. I'm not claiming that. Defenders of the Yochanan angle will call upon maturity from their audience. But at the end of the day, it is still a very strange heterosexual action. We are never given a reason as to why Yahushua would snuggle up to Yochanan without invoking the jealousy of the other 12. I mean, children all wait their turn to sit on the lap of Santa Claus. Sigh, I know. Wouldn't you want a little snuggle time with Mashiach if it was offered? I would think they'd all be lining up, but no. They were apparently a militia of Stoics. A mere six days had passed between the Nard incident and the Passover meal, according to Yochanan 12.1. One chapter earlier, specifically 11.55, we learned that the Passover was nigh at the raising of Eliezer. Never are we told about the disciple whom Yahushua loved until after the resurrection of Eliezer Lazarus. More specifically, the title isn't bestowed upon the Talmud until after his sister Miriam anointed Yahushua's feet with her hair. That would be the more honest way of looking at this. It, what, people say it was after Lazarus, therefore it was Lazarus. Actually, no, it was after, after the Miriam of Megdal episode. In all honesty, I hadn't made the Talmudic connection when starting out this investigation. It wasn't even on my mind. At the time, I had stated something to the effect that the Nard episode was a declaration of their impending wedding night, and also that their meeting at the tomb came across like the pair had already been intimate. Well, if Mary McMiggle is the one, and you and I know she most likely is, then what vibe does the Last Supper give? She is leaning on his bosom, having now been given the title, The Disciple Whom He Loved. It comes across like they're honeymooners, if you, if you need that spilled out for you. That's what it feels like to me. Is it, you know, that's exactly like the thing you would see of, of young lovers at the, uh, at the table, and all the bros are like, well, we've lost our bros. There's a woman. You see why Peter is so, uh, Kifa is so jealous of her. The second instance happens at the foot of the tree on which Yahushua was crucified. 
Search this out for yourself and you will find article after article claiming there was only one Talmud present and accounted for and that it was Yochanan. Well, that can't be. I'm not saying Yochanan wasn't present for the crucifixion. I obviously wasn't there and so can't say either way. He simply wasn't accounted for in any of the Gospels. They don't even know what to do with him in the paintings. He's usually, he's usually just standing around, hands in his pocket, not quite sure if he should be in the scene or not. And so this is what we read. Chapter 19, verses 26 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Yahusha his mother and his mother's sister, Miriam, the woman of Akav, and Miriam of Migdal, the three Marys. When Yahusha therefore saw his mother and the Talmud standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold your son. And I put the word in there, uh, Hayos. And then said he to the Talmud, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the Talmud took her unto his own home. The problem I ha I'm having is that I don't see Yochanan mentioned anywhere, do you? Verse 25 lists only three individuals standing nearby, and they're all women. Miriam, his mother, Miriam, his aunt, and Miriam of Migdal, his woman. They're all, actually all his family. One of them is then mentioned in the following verses, the Talmud whom he loved. It says, Yahushua saw his mother and the Talmud standing at her side. Are we expected to believe that Yochanan appeared on the scene between verses 25 and 26? Because he wasn't mentioned earlier. It appears as though our suspects list has just grown a whole lot shorter. Of the three Miriams, the Talmud whom he loved was either Miriam or Miriam. Now you can see here, uh, Hyos 5207, according to uh, Strong's. And I'm not going to go through all that. I'll just talk about it. Up until now, I have neglected the elephant in the room. Both references to the Talmud whom Yahushua loved, and in fact, the rest to come, are referred to in masculine terms. That is not my problem. It is with the translators and their biases. So I guess I ended up did talking about this. But Mashiach refers to the Talmud as a son, you will tell me. And what of it? The word that is used is hayos. It is a reference to a son by way of birth or adoption, and when used figuratively, describes anyone sharing the same nature as the father. Another thing it captures on a spiritual level is in highlighting the legal right to the father's inheritance, which a son or daughter might receive. But then look at what else we read in the old concordance. Strong's insist that Hyos, aka son, equally refers to female believers. Hmm, we'll say it ain't so, when it is employed in the Gospels and letters. They even list off Galatians 3.28 as a reference. We have only recently been over that passage when discussing the Gospel of Taom controversy. Best to revisit it then, see if we missed anything. So, once again, in Galatians 3.26-29, this is what we read. For ye are all the children, H-U-I-O-I um, -I in the Greek, of Elohim by faith in Mashiach Yahusha. For as many of you as have been baptized into Mashiach have, been, have put on Mashiach, there is neither Yehudi nor Yavadi, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Yahusha HaMashiach, and if ye belong to Mashiach, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we see here, New King James Version says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. New American Standard Bible says, for, ye, for you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You see how they added that? 
I went ahead and added two other translations so that you can get a better idea of what's happening. The translator of the Sefer lists off children in verse 26 rather than sons, and I wish he wouldn't. Other translators commit the same deed, though certainly not all of them. The NKJV keeps it as it is and reads sons. But then the NASB says sons and adds daughters, hoping to get some sort of point across to modern readers. At what point is that exactly? I get the feeling that an important theological statement is being made in accrediting everyone in Mashiach to sons of Elohim. Why must political correctness always get in the way of a deeper understanding? There are other references to all men and women becoming sons of Elohim rather than children or daughters, and I have taken the time to list a couple of them. All right, so we see here... Um, Romans 8.14, it says, For as many as are led by the Ruach Elohim, they are the sons of Elohim. And here's another from Gospel of Luke 20.26. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children, but it's the same word here, H-U-I-O-I, uh, -I, of Elohim being the children of the resurrection. And one more for the road. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his Elohim, and he shall be my son. Revelation 2.17. Paul straight up assigns everyone led by the Ruach to sons of Elohim when speaking of the many. Yochanan does the same does the same when penning those words in Revelation. The Sefer once again swaps sons for children in Luke 20.26, 20, when in fact the word is utilized, the uh hu, hu, I can't pronounce that, H-U-I-O-T word is utilized. And why is that? The promise is that all men and women will become sons of Elohim because, as we have seen on multiple occasions in Galatians, there are neither male nor female in Yehusha HaMashiach. It is thought that the majority of early messianic followers were women. Gnostics are depicted as stoic men, sometimes even haters of women, when in all likelihood and in all honesty, their numbers were swarming with a far greater ratio of women. In, uh, in fact, the Gnostics were criticized by the Roman controllers, the, the RCC, in the early years, for preying on weak-minded women, when in reality the women flocked to their teachings because they were offered equal, they offered equal standing with men. Do you see what's happening there when they're accrediting women to sons? Certainly, if those women had a problem with becoming a son of Elohim, then we are not told. Perhaps I'll just speak for myself, but that quip in the Gospel of Thomas 114 regarding Miriam Megdal becoming a man is starting to look more and more, how should I phrase this, biblical. The third instance is the one where you will call me out on this so-called Miriam of Megdal nonsense. I had started out admitting it's not a perfect theory which is the same thing as saying it will be discredited by a great deal of my readership, though not all of you. I might as well just get it out of the way then, hadn't I? Here it is without interruption. Now on that certain Sabbath came Miriam of Migdal early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and saw the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she ran and came to Simon Kepha. It's always the two of them pitted together. It's always, it's like always the two of them. And to the other Talmud, Talmud deem, or the other Talmud, the disciple whom Yahushua loved, and said unto them, They have taken away Adonai out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Kepha therefore went forth, and that other Talmud, Talmud, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other Talmud did outrun Kepha and came first to the sepulchre. 
And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then came Simon Kepha following him, and went into the sepulchre and saw the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other Talmud, which came first to the sepulchre, and saw, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the, the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And then the Talmudim went away again into their own home. Gospel of John 20, 1 through 10. Well, darn, so much for trying. I have already shown you the passage in Kepha's Bezora, where Miriam of Migdal is accredited as being the Talmudim whom Yosha loved. In this, very, uh, in this very scene, no less. But then here it reads differently. Miriam of Bigdal runs from the empty sepulcher to tell the others about it. She encounters Kepha, her old sparring partner. But also, wait for it, the Talmud whom Yahusha loves. Gulp. That sound effect was me being uncomfortable, in case you were wondering. Migdal and the Talmud whom Yahusha loved has both, uh, are both encountering each other in the same scene. Having a face-off, I shouldn't wonder. Kepha and the mystery person then sprint to the sepulcher with the later overtaking the former, telling us that Miriam was a runner. They inspect the tomb for themselves only to return home, leaving Miriam of Bigdol behind to encounter the risen Mashiach, which of course leads us directly into the scene where they hold their private conversation together, the, the one I, I feel was a very intimate uh, encounter. I will admit that there is little about this scene which would naturally lead me to conclude that Miriam of Bigdol is the aforementioned Talmudim. Miriam Salome then? LOL. The list is a rather short one. No, she doesn't sound right either. Miriam, is, uh, Miriam Salome. Nearly everyone thinks it is Yochanan outrunning Kiva, though I will sh soon show you why he discredits himself from being on the suspects list. It is somebody else. Miriam, I cannot think of anyone else but Miriam of Migdal. Who better to run to the Talmudim and then outrun Kiva, her sparring partner, but the wife of Mashiach? Some have suggested the faster runner was Eliezer, her brother, and still others, Yaakov, the brother of Yehusha. But they are, at best, fallback positions. I see nothing in Yochanan's writing that would infer their identities. My back is to the wall on this one, and I have no other choice but to claim a corruption of scripture. It certainly wouldn't be the first occurrence either. The Hebrew Masoretic is replete with word swaps, scrubbing Mashiach's presence where wherever or whenever possible, and the lying pen of the scribe has been discovered in the Gospels as well, particularly when it comes to, the prom to their promotion of the Trinity, though the Ruach HaKadosh received a gender swap from female to male in the Latin text. That's a whole other conversation, and it's a big one. I would surmise that the Holy Family is the number one victim in the very book which testifies to them, and this is one such occurrence. Somebody committed their fingertips to a very simple word swap so as to forever frustrate what would otherwise be a straightforward investigation. And just so you guys know, I, for, for whatever reason, didn't cover it here, or I might later on tonight, I'm not sure. Uh, the Gospel of John has been long uh, commented on that it is strangely written out of order. And there is a lot of theories out there that it was written in order and that at some point very early on, from the early editor, scribe, writer, whatever, uh, you know, there was maybe they were written on different sheets of paper, 
uh, rather than a scroll, and they got into a backwards order. And um, so, and I'm not the first to comment on the fact that they feel that there was a corruption there, a very simple swap uh, with Miriam of Migdal there to to pull her away. Uh, they had to kind of, it was a little too clear, and they had to make it seem like it was somebody else. The only other gospel that gives the same account as Luke, perhaps it can lead us, uh, lend us more clues. And it says, it was Miriam of Migdal and Yochanan, and Miriam, the mother of Yaakov, Yochanan is feminine for John, for Yochanan is not Yochanan, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Kepha and ran into the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. Nope. It only frustrated the matter, including new suspects. Still, though, I'm not reading anything about Yochanan in this version. It simply claims Kepha ran to the sepulchre without making further mention of the Talmudim who outpaced him. He's not there, he or she. Eliezer goes unmentioned, as is Yaakov. Though the apostles are listed as being present to hear the news, we know they cannot possibly be contenders. Every last one of them split the scene at the crucifixion. Only Yosef and Nicodemus were accounted for when it came time to bury him, as male relations go. But then we see Yochanan mentioned at the crime scene. That's not John. Yochanan and Yochanan, huge difference. Get your on on straight, why don't you? If you will recall, she was one of the three mentioned financial donors of Mashiach's ministry. It was Yochanan, wasn't it? The Talmudim whom Yahushua loved. I knew it. It was her all along. Well, let's keep reading to see if it was Yochanan all along. The fourth reference to the Talmudim whom Yahushua loved lands in the very final chapter of Yochanan's gospel. And guess who it involves? Yahushua, obviously, but why am, I not surpri- uh, why am I not surprised to find Kepha in the mix? I am detecting an ongoing theme in all of this. Before we go over it, let's get a quick recap. Regarding what we have so far learned in two of the three given examples namely Yochanan 13, 23-25, and 21-10, the mysterious Talmudim was only mentioned in relation to Kepha, the Megdal versus the rock. After, um, <laughs> uh, after we are through here, I will encourage you to read the second and third chapter of Acts. They involve a ministry partnership between Kepha and Yochanan, and nowhere do we get the impression that Kepha was envious of the love of the favorite or the favoritism which his contemporary was shown by Mashiach. I'm saying it, uh, it's because the mysterious Talmudim and Yochanan are not the same person. You'll see what I mean. So continuing uh, chapter 21 through 15 through 19. So when they had dined, Yahushua said to Simon Kepha, Shimon, son of Yonah, do you love agape me more than these? He said unto him, Yea, Adonai, you know that I follow you. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again the second time, uh, Shimon, son of Yonah, do you agape me? He said unto him, Yea, Adonai, you know that I follow you. He said unto him, Feed my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Yonah, do you love me? It should say, agape me. Kepha was grieved because he said unto him the third time, do you, uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, the third time is, phileus me. 
not agape me. That's why I didn't include that. And he said unto him, Adonai, you know all things. You know that I phileas you. Yahushua said unto him, feed my sheep. Amen, amen. I say unto you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked whither you would. But when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands and another shall gird you and carry you whither you would not. This spoke he, signifying by what death he should glorify Elohim. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. Pause. I am merely giving you this information as a forerunner to context. Kepha has just been grilled by Mashiach and whether he loves him or not. And don't you know, the Greek language, is, the Greek language distinguishes four different kinds of love. Uh, philia, eros, uh, storge, and agape. Agape is the highest form of love and charity, ultimately describing the love of Elohim for man. Yahushua employs the word in the conversation, agape. Kepha responds in claiming that he philo loves him, which is to say he merely loves him as a brother. Yahushua repeats the question a second time with the same result. Do you agape? No, I philo. But then on the third go-round, Yahushua asks Kepha if he philia loves him, meaning can they at least be friends? Finally, something which Kepha can agree with. Yes, I love you as a friend is his final offer. Well, you'd better step it up in the love department, Kepha, because in a little while, you'll be stretching forth your hands for him, continuing. Then Kepha, turning about, sees the Talmudim, the Talmud, whom Yahushua loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Adonai, who is he who betrays you? Kepha, seeing him, said to Yahushua, Adonai, um, Let's see, Kepha, oh yeah, so, okay, yeah, there we go. Okay, I, I read that wrong. Kepha, seeing him, said to Yahushua, Adonai, and what shall this man do? Yahushua said unto him, if I will that he tarries, or you could say she tarries, till I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that the Talmud should not die. Yahushua said unto him, he shall not die, but if I will that he tarries till I come, what is that to you? This is the Talmud which testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his or her testimony is true. There's so much happening in this small passage that I don't even know where to begin. The best advice I can tell you is that is the survival tip my older cousin gave me upon learning that I'd be attending his high school. Just sharpen your pencil and breathe. I recommend you do the same here. Supposing spoken words are any indication of the heart, then it seems somewhat certain that Kepha was jealous of the love which Yahushua showed to the mystery Talmudim. Kepha wanted to be loved, though he was unwilling to reciprocate. And she's all he could think about. I'm no shrink, but I would say Kepha was a shade north of Alpha. We learned of his animosity towards Miriam in other Gospels, like Mary, uh, the Gospel of Miriam, the Gospel of Taom, though it is just as evident here. And so follow the narrative flow. Mashiach has just prophesied of Kepha's death. Kepha relates his own impending martyrdom to the uh, agape which Yahushua expects of him. And so it is only natural that his first thought would fall upon the woman who had won over his deepest love and affection. Had he not proclaimed an equal sonship in the kingdom? To Kepha, it might only seem fair that he expect the same fate, if not greater, from the said individual. Yahushua's response is so telling. In saying he, she will tarry until he comes, 
Mashiach is not giving us a preview of Yochanan's bestseller revelation. By now you should be putting it together. I have long heard within eschatological circles that Mashiach's return is symbolized by a groom returning for his bride, which is precisely right. He straight up told Kepha that he had a mind to come back for his woman. And what is that to you? Why I have, why I have deduced that Yochanan is not the Talmudim in question can best be summed up in verse 24. And really, I can't believe I never saw it before. The writer says he based his narrative upon the written testimony of the Talmud, the Talmud whom Yahushua loved. Um, he based it upon his own writings, really? Is this the Hebrew way of describing a first draft or something? Obviously, if Yochanan is the writer of the gospel, which bears his name, then the Talmudim cannot very well be him because the former is basing it upon the later. Who is it then? Haven't you been listening to anything? The entire story arch from beginning to end is based upon her written perspective. It's why he, uh, it validates Yochanan, the baptizer's role as the anticipated groomsman, as well as the wedding of Cain of Galilee, and the adulterous woman thrust down before her man. It brings to light Miriam's uh, excommunication at her brother's funeral, the erotic significance of the Nard incident, and the Talmud, the Talmud reclining upon his bosom during the Pesach meal. The intimate moment at the sepulcher in particular screams of the testimony giver's identity, as nobody else would have known of their meeting but who? But Miriam. All right. So now this next section here is going to be a repeat for some of you, if you were around uh, a year, year and a half ago, when I went over the only begotten daughter of Elohim, I have kind of reworked some of this. So it's, just, you know, some fresh material, but it's old. And I have to do this. I have to do this to you guys tonight. And I apologize. It's because I know that, uh, you know, the bulk of people haven't seen that old material. And I'm not faulting anyone. I, I probably wouldn't either. So we're going to go over this again. And you're going to see um, uh, why I'm making the only begotten daughter of Elohim connection. Nope. Not a typo. That's only begotten daughter. I said it, and I'm not apologizing, not clickbait either. Moving forward, I will show you why I think Yahuwah having a pre-existing daughter is worth our consideration, but also that she is once again the woman who we've come to know as Miriam of Migdal. Somebody really lost their marbles this time, you tell me, and it isn't the person reading these words from your side of the computer screen. Sure, shoot the messenger, why don't you? Because all I can do sometimes is report on this stuff. You will tell me it's heresy to even elicit the possibility. Oh, is it now? Show me in the book where it says so. You can't just make up heresies. The doctrines of men do that all the time, but I expect more from my reader. Either something is scriptural and true, or it's only posing a scripture and is therefore a lie or completely missing the mark. The question is, given that something, uh, it, the question is, given that something claims to be scripturally true, how do you determine whether you're being lied to or not? I have my own answer, but I'm curious as to what yours may be. And really, I'm used to the knee-jerk reactions by now. Will every 21st century corporate church employee scoop my caboose to the curb at the suggestion that there may be indeed a divine daughter? Probably. They would have done that anyway some years ago with the mere mention of Torah obedience had I given them the opportunity. Talk about a bad boy. If you keep the Father's commands, then you are apostate. Think about that long and hard. They'd run Abraham, Moshe, David, every prophet imaginable, as well as, 
as well as, and not exclusively to, but as well as Yehusha HaMashiach and his entourage to the curb for claiming the same. I prefer their company over the lawless group. How about you? That right there should be the qualifier for scripture. It's what I look for in every single book that I read, including the words of Messiah. If a book insists that keeping our Father's commands produces the blessings in the kingdom to come and is the narrow road to salvation, then I am curious to hear what else this writer has to offer me. Because really, how many books manage to stick the landing on that one? Contrarily, if a book throws the Torah of Yahuwah by the wayside, tells me it's unnecessary or worse done away with, then you can be certain that I have no further interest in what it has to say. Assuming that that little line isn't inserted in by some random mock or scribe, which could be very well be the case. The speaker is a false something or other, as Torah is necessary for righteous living and cannot be done away with. The book I am referring to in making the present assertion does just that. Yosef and Asenath pronounces the Torah of Yahuwah as the ultimate truth. By now, the book should be no stranger to you. Um, actually, well, yeah, maybe I did talk about it earlier. I just haven't presented on it. O Yahuwah, my Elohim, to thee I will cry, hear my supplication, and unto thee will I make confession of my sins, and unto thee will I reveal my transgressions of the Torah. There it is. The person praying is Aseneth, virgin daughter of Pentephres. We shall have to get to know her better. Now, I'm not going to be going over... I'm just going to tell you right now, that's... Uh, because I'm not going to be going over in this presentation. Uh, Aseneth is the daughter of Dinah and Shechem. If you recall, Shechem raped Dinah. It ended in the uh, total destruction of Shechem by the 12 patriarchs. And um, she went on to have a daughter, Aseneth. This daughter ended up in Egypt. It was adopted by Potiphar, of all people. The same dude who had Yosef as a slave and so Yosef actually ends up marrying his niece and Aseneth grows up not knowing uh, that she is a Hebrew. So it's really interesting. And uh, moving on. But before ever getting around to marriage, she is here confessing to and, uh, and repenting from a lifetime of idol worship. Far more importantly, her guiding light is the Torah. She has finally discovered the truth. She has come to terms with the fact that every other Elohim, including the doctor, uh, the doctrines they offer, is a child of Satan. You see how she describes her sins as transgressing the Torah. You think billions of Catholics and Christians hugging their Bible to their bosom as if their life depends upon it would know better, but they nearly all claim the Torah is done away with. That's the lie right there. The only instruction in righteous living ever given is no longer a standard. That entire attitude is also testimony to the truth of the word. The darkness cannot comprehend the light. And so the very few books in the history of mankind, which dare to lead us towards what men despise, should be, caref uh, should be paid careful attention to. And anyways, Aseneth falls into perfect agreement with Yochanan, the up-and-coming disciple of Yahusha, who would later write, Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the Torah. For sin is the transgression of the Torah. See what I mean? Uh, that comes from, of course, 1 John 3, 4. Clearly, I can conclude that Yochanan's words are true, just as Mashiach's words are true. And like Yosef and Asenath, I can furthermore take an interest in what else the disciple of Yahushua has to say. And no, Aseneth is not revealed as the only begotten daughter. You were probably thinking that. Well, she's not. 
the book uh, reference delivers those details, but I'm not quite ready to give them away yet, as there is still so much ground to cover. Be patient, we'll get there. Or just skip ahead and miss out on a lot of good stuff. It's your diet. I've already, dis- already established in these parts that there is a family in heaven. Father, mother, son, scripture says so. Why not have a daughter then? It never says he doesn't have a daughter. And it certainly never implies that he wouldn't want one. Contrarily, you will see for yourself where it says he does have a daughter and that she is loved. Just as importantly, why she is concealed from the perverted gaze of the world. If the Bible was written under the conditions of a patriarchal society, then that means heaven itself is patriarchal. The world is no longer patriarchal, but that just tells us how far we removed we are from the rule of Elohim. The father would have every reason to keep his daughter tucked away and concealed until the appropriate hour. How long did he keep his son hidden from knowledge? Quite a while. What happened when he was revealed? Exactly. Murdered. Imagine then what they would do to his daughter. Rape her. That's just what they do. Every single generation of men would take up arms and then rape her as a spoil of war, if given the opportunity. And that's only the appetizer. I cringe at even mentioning that on paper, but you know they would. I am showing you four separate occasions when rape occurred in his story. Uh, Europa was raped by Zeus, disguised as a white bull. Persephone was raped and taken to the underworld by Pluto. That started the whole Eleusinian mysteries. Helen was raped, inciting the Troy fiasco. And the last one on the bottom right, though, is biblical. It nearly happened to Shushana, Susanna. She would have been the victim of two elders of Yasharel while they were in exile in Babylon, and had she not screamed at their attempt. When they failed to feed their lust, they sought to put her to death, and attempt which an attempt which would have succeeded if it hadn't been for the meddling prophet Daniel. I certainly wouldn't be the first to claim that nothing transpires among the children of Yasharel apart from what has already transpired among the, the patriarchs. And so, going even further back into his story, the same thing happened to Yaakov's only begotten daughter. Dinah was raped. Somebody is bound to tell me Dinah wasn't a patriarch, as only her fathers and brothers were patriarchs. True. But this is why the present journey is so important, as you showed... Uh, eventually discover that Dinah was, in fact, a matriarch. And just as much a mother to Yasharel as her other as her other four mommies, Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah, not forgetting Rivka and Sarah before them. Specifically, you shall see how Dinah's rape ties into the Only Begotten Daughter storyline, as well as our plan of salvation. I'm not sure I'm going to cover all that tonight. Um, I actually left out like 30 pages uh, tonight because there's no way to get through it all. So I had to cut out a lot of the, the Hebrew uh, uh, genealogies and, and talking about Job and all that uh, because Dinah went on to marry Job. The rape of Dinah is told in Beersheth chapter 34. A much longer account, however, can be found in Yasher. You know what? I'm going to actually skip all this. Um, um, you guys know about the incident. I'm just trying to save time tonight. Uh, she goes to an all-woman's affair, city of Shechem, and uh, Shechem goes, and he's kind of like a snooty French villain. He's like, he's like kissing her arm right there from the balcony in front of the the twelve patriarchs, and the twelve patriarchs are getting like pissed. You know, they're like, okay, you're you're a dead man. You know, that's our sister up there. And they go back and they circumcise him, and then you know, 
take them out. So we don't need to cover all that. Uh, let's jump ahead to page 35. Scroll down a little bit. I need a drink of coffee. You can see it, a picture there. We'll start right over the picture. A picture of uh, the woman caught in adultery, Mary Magdal, Miriam of Migdal in front of Mashiach. Do you recall who else was raped? Miriam of Migdal was raped. That is my suggestion at any rate. It happened on the streets of Jerusalem, the reason being that she was the betrothed of Mashiach. And that sort of thing attracts the perverted gaze of Satan and the temple controllers working for him. In her case specifically, I don't think it could have happened to her had she been guarding the commands, particularly in the way that it went down. Most of you were probably wondering how we switched topics from the betrothed Mashiach to the only begotten daughter of Elohim, and was there a typewriter swap with the, with the cleaning service, because I seem completely confused as to what book we're presently inhabiting. I assure you then that it's all coming back full circle to Miriam of Migdal eventually. The thing is, my research into the only begotten daughter of Elohim was put out long before I ever asked myself the betrothed Mashiach question. I had absolutely no clue where it would ultimately turn to at the time. All I can do sometimes is present the information as it comes along and see by way of experiment if it is a house of bricks or a house of cards. Well, I'm here to tell you that the only begotten daughter of Elohim holds water, and she is none other than Mary Mabigdal. It's why I'm merging my research on that project with this one and then adding to it. Seriously, I, I thought the trail had gone cold, and there was nothing more to say on the matter, but that couldn't be any further than the truth. Or from the truth, I should say. Yosef was a Mashiach prototype, and his wife, Asenath, was a part of it. Fact of the matter is, I had been staring at Miriam Amigdal all along. The only begotten daughter of Elohim has a name, and it's revealed to us as penitence, which is beautiful. The name of the Ruach HaKadosh is Sophia in Greek, meaning wisdom, though its Hebrew equivalent is uh, Chokma or Chokma. The son, as you know, is Yeshua or Yahushua, the Hebrew word for salvation. And since we're on the meaning behind names, Miriam means beloved. Sounds precisely like the Miriam of Bigel I've come to know. Though oddly, the root of Miriam also means rebellious or bitter. Don't you just love it when the meaning behind a series of names tells a story? The mother dispenses wisdom and Yahushua saves, whereas the entire role of penitence is to petition on behalf of those who repent of their sins and turn in obedience to Torah. We'll get to that. But first, here's, what I'm, here's where I'm pulling my information from. Uh, this comes back again from Yosef and Asenath. Take heart, Asenath. Lo, Yahuwah has given you to Yosef to be his bride, and he shall be your bridegroom. And you shall no more be called Asenath, but city of refuge shall be your name. For many nations shall ref, uh, take refuge in you, and under your wings shall many peoples find shelter, and within your walls those who give their allegiance to Elohim and penitence will find security. For penitence is the Most High's daughter, and she entreats the Most High on your behalf every hour, and on behalf of all who repent, for he is the father of penitence and she the mother of virgins. And every hour she petitions him from those who repent, for she has prepared a heavenly bridal chamber for those who love her, and she will look after them forever. And penitence is herself a virgin, very beautiful and pure and chaste and gentle, and Elohim Most High loves her, and all his angels do her reverence. All right. 
The context of the scene has the angel uh, Penuel visiting Asenath in her tower of abode after she had repented of her transgressions of the Torah. He announces to her glad tidings from heaven, first and foremost, that she will be Yosef's bride. But then secondly, that many nations will find refuge in her, a promise which she can find, which can find its most applicable fulfillment with her future two children through Yosef. It is through Ephraim and Manesha, through Ephraim in particular, by which the Goyim would be grafted into Yashrod at, at a later hour. That's us, right? But uh, through Ephraim. Penuel's transition is peculiar. He introduces penitence, but does so in a way which would have us thinking she is a prototype of the Most High's daughter. I'll have you know that I uh, sat on this passage for a while, hoping to make heads or tails of it. There were, there were phone calls to friends, some gasped with amazement. Why has nobody been talking about it? For one thing, you can dismiss the passage and the book as a whole, but you certainly cannot claim I'm making it up. The implications are staggering. You know how Yehusha HaMashiach serves the set-apart ones in his father's kingdom? Well, penitence does too, eternally. But there's more. I took out the highlighter so that you wouldn't miss it. She has prepared a heavenly bridal chamber for those who love her. What does that remind you of? I obviously couldn't say, since you are not me and vice versa, Though it directs my attention right back to the Virgin Lady Church and the Shepherd of Hermes 23, 1 through 2, whom I have already explained, uh, I think two presentations ago, was a probable stand-in for Miriam of Migdal. They're the same person in the Shepherd of Hermes. I won't be the first nor the last to claim that Yosef was a messianic prototype. But then, as I stated earlier, I will add to that because nearly everyone leaves Aseneth out of the equation. She, too, was a prototype of Miriam of Migdal, but also of the only begotten daughter. It would only make sense, then, that Aseneth would be found modeling the character of penitence in heaven. Moments before her visit from the angel Penuel, or Fanuel, Aseneth can be found sprawled out upon the floor of her room, bellowing this prayer. Look upon my orphanhood, O Yahuwah, for unto thee did I flee, O Yahuwah. Lo, I took off my royal robe, interwoven with gold, and put on a black tunic instead. Lo, I loosed my girdle, my golden girdle, and girt myself with a rope and sackcloth. Lo, I threw off my diadem from my head and sprinkled myself with ashes. This is a sign of total repentance. Lo, the floor of my room, once scattered with stones of different colors and of purple and besprinkled with myrrh, is now sprinkled with my tears and scattered with ashes. Lo, Yahuwah, from the ashes and from my tears, there is as much mud inside my room as there is on a public highway. All right, so that's, you know, the sign of total repentance there. I'm going to, if you... I'll want to refer to this later um, because there's a lack of time tonight. I'm going to have to cut some of this out. And it's okay. All this I already covered in the the my second only begotten uh, daughter of Elohim passage where I just go through all the scripture and show where it talks about penitence, penitence, repentance, repentance. Uh, sometimes speaking is kind of like a noun um, and sounds like, you know, uh, let's see. Let's see if I can find my um, my favorite. One of my favorite comes from Luke 532 and it says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to what? To repentance. That's really interesting. Um, anyways, all right, so I'm going to skip all that. There's a lot here. And I'm going to jump straight to page 45, because for my own sanity and for yours, we need to get through this. So everyone jump to page 45, the seven spirits of Miriam and Elihim. 
Unfortunately, I just realized something. I got so excited about my discovery regarding Miriam's counterpart, the only begotten daughter of Elohim, that I charged right ahead for getting to adequately explain the narrative of Yosef and Aseneth to my reading audience or my listening audience. It's like I discovered a constellation in the firmament and attributed two separate women to the same diagram of stars without actually drawing the lines between them. How silly of me. And come to think about it, I could have just done some edits and you'd never know about my bum rush tactics. The explanation why I did it this way and then chose to spend an entire paragraph telling you about it is a simple one. It's my paper and I can write it however I want to. A writer is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he intends to. Regarding Yosef and Aseneth, I suggest you digest the book for yourself if you haven't already, though at present you can at least be contented knowing its plot stays true to the title. Y&A, or Yosef and Aseneth, is all about the patriarch couple, but, but from the woman's perspective, making it more of an Esther or Ruth as story arcs go. Ruth, I have already gone over uh, earlier tonight, as it contained a plot device, or I guess you could say a MacGuffin, a MacGuffin, which Miriam of Bigdal later borrowed from. Esther, I'm not so sure about at present. Perhaps further investigation will exhume something of importance at the Persian beauty context. Y&A, though, is saturated with weather forecasts for the up-and-coming Miriam marriage situation. I think what I will do is quote from the first couple of chapters without interruption and then state my comments afterwards. That seems like a good approach. It gives you the opportunity of thinking about things before I take up the page, filling in all the blanks. This approach has worked thus far, but either way, let, let me know as I'm always seeking improvement. And so here we go. Uh, I'll be reading a little bit of a lengthy passage from chapter two of Yosef and Aseneth. Uh, actually, chapter one and then chapter two. And uh, Potiphar, Pentephres, just take my, my word for it, it's Potiphar. We're not going through all that tonight, but it's the same dude. And Potiphar had a virgin daughter of about 18 years of age, tall and beautiful and graceful, more beautiful than any other virgin in the land. And she was quite unlike the daughters of the Egyptians, but in every respect like the daughters of the Hebrews. And she was as tall as Sarah and as beautiful as Rebecca and as fair as Rachel and the virgin's name was Aseneth. Interesting, I didn't correct that to Rivka there, to Rebecca. And the fame of her beauty spread through all the land, even to its remotest corners. And all the sons of the lords and of the satraps and of the kings sought her hand in marriage, young men, young men, all of them. And there was great rivalry between them because of her. And they began to fight amongst themselves because of Aseneth. And Pharaoh's eldest son heard about her, and he begged his father to give her to him as his woman. And he said to him, Give me Aseneth, the daughter of uh, Potiphar, the priest of Heliopolis, as my woman. And his father Pharaoh said to him, Why should you want a woman of lower station than yourself? Are you not king of all the earth? No, see now, the daughter of King uh, Joachim is betrothed to you, and she is a queen, and very beautiful indeed. Take her as a woman." Now Aseneth despised all men and regarded them with contempt, yet no man had ever seen her, for Potiphar had a tower in his house. There's tower right there. Pay attention to that. And it was large and very high, 
and the top story had ten rooms in it. The first room was large and pleasant, and it was paved with purple stones, and its walls were faced with precious stones of different kinds. And the ceiling of that room was of gold, and within it were arranged the innumerable Elohim of the Egyptians in gold and silver. And Aseneth worshipped all these, and she feared them and offered sacrifices to them. The second room contained all the finery of Aseneth's adornment and treasure chest, and there was much gold in it, and silver, and garments woven with gold, and precious stones of great price, and fine linens, and all her girlish ornaments were there. The third room contained all the good things of the earth, and it was Aseneth's storehouse. And seven virgins had the remaining seven rooms, one each, and they used to wait on Aseneth, and were of the same age as she was, for they were all born on the same night as Aseneth. That's really interesting. And they were very beautiful, like the stars of heaven. And no man or boy had ever had anything to do with them. The narrative has an 18-year-old Aseneth living in a tower above her parents' home in the Egyptian city of On. Right away, what does that remind you of? We have been over it already. This is an open book test. Chop, chop. The Migdal, obviously. Aseneth lived nearly two decades of her upbringing living in a tower. And Miriam was the tower. I'm detecting the fresh-scented breeze of an allegory. Also, it seems as though she beats Rapunzel to the punch by so many thousands of years and some change. We then read that Aseneth was tall and graceful, more beautiful than any other virgin in the land, looking suspiciously like a Hebrew woman. Hmm. Well, I'm not commenting on that tidbit right here and now, as that will spoil everything when I do discuss it, which I've already told you about, about Dinah's part in the narrative, that she is indeed a Hebrew. You will have to jump, either jump ahead or wait. Reading only slightly between the lines, Athenus is Aseneth is described for us as one who is set apart from the world. She is attended to by seven virgins for the whole of her life, having never been seen by another living male, aside from her father and what is later described to us as a dead brother, which is kind of interesting. Her set-apart lifestyle is especially ironic since her father was a priest of On, making her an unclean idolater. It even says she worshipped all the Elohim of Metrayim. That inconvenient detail will undoubtedly come around full circle when I address what's really going on with the 144,000. Hopefully we'll have time to cover that again tonight. Perhaps the greatest clue to whom she symbolizes is given to us when we are told that the fame of her beauty has spread throughout all the land, even to its remotest corners, so that all the sons and lords and kings alike sought her hand in marriage even to the point that they would fight amongst themselves in order to win her hand. You see, this is the problem I'm having in writing a section this late in the game, but then placing it ahead of the competition. The part about the kings of the earth fighting for her hand, killing everyone in the way, should make perfect sense given what we now know concerning the only begotten daughter of Elohim. As evidence to the legitimacy of this threat, Pharaoh's son attempts to murder Yosef and steal her for himself towards the end of the book, uh, uh, Yosef and Asenath. Once she has been revealed to the world, that is. I am telling you now because I don't plan on covering the third and final act of the book. Getting back to the seven versions attending Aseneth from seven rooms of her tower. There is meaning to be found in it, and I think I might know what it is. Returning to Miriam's introduction in the Bezorah of Luke, this is what we read. And certain women, which had been healed of evil ruachoth and infirmities, Miriam called Migdal, out of whom went seven devils. And Yokana, the woman of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Shushada, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. It says Miriam was called Migdal, and seven evil Ruachoth possessed her. That's essentially the same thing as saying there were seven demons 
haunting the tower. Not very flattering for the lovely young lady who became the betrothed of Mashiach, as descriptors go. Aside from those unpleasantries, I suspect there's something far greater going on. I would probably kick myself if I overlooked the seven Ruakoth of Elohim. The Trinity fanboys avoid mention of the seven Ruakoth at all costs. If the subject does come up, expect promotion of the Trinity to land within the next couple of frantic sentences. Yes, you've all heard of the Trinity, three dudes in heaven. But then what of the seven? They once again derive from your canon of all people. There are four notable mentions, and I am about to show you. So um, I'll, I'm not going to read those, those four right there, but you can see them. Revelation 1-4, Revelation 3-1, 4-5, and 5-6 all mention the seven Ruachoth of Elohim. Uh, and from the seven Ruachoth, which are before the throne. Uh, these things says he that has the seven Ruachoth of Elohim. And then uh, uh, menorahs of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven Ruachoth of Elohim, and which are the seven Ruachoth of Elohim sent from uh, sent uh, from into all the earth. So speaking of frantic tailspins, these seven Ruachoth are almost, if not always, claimed to be the Ruach HaKadosh by the Trinity promoters, as if that explains everything, because it most certainly does not. I thought the Trinity model was three persons in one. What they should claim then is three persons plus seven additional spirits in one, but you know that doesn't sound quite right. It seems to me that Oakham's razor is right again and that the simplest explanation is usually the best one. The seven Ruachoth of Elohim are before the throne in heaven and are sent all throughout the earth. It's not rocket science. Yochanan attributes the seven Ruachoth to menorahs in Revelation 4-5, a theological portrait which happens to agree with the vision presented to us in Zechariah 4-2. But then look at how Yeshayahu describes the seven. And the Ruach Yahuwah shall rest upon him, the Ruach Chokma, that's wisdom right there, Sophia, and Binda, the Ruach Etza, and Givura, the Ruach Death, and Yira of Yahuwah. Isaiah 11, uh, that's from verse 2. I didn't ask you to count the names up on your fingers, but had you done so, then seven in total would have been numbered. Those are their Hebrew counterparts, by the way. Yahuwah should be known to you by now. The, so Yahuwah is one of them. The others translate to wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear, or awesome reverence in English. And as I was saying, there are seven, seven of them in total. My personal conclusion is that Chokma is the Ruach HaKadosh that we hear so much about. Though it is true that seven is the number for perfection, we mustn't forget the set-apart day of the week, Sabbath. Chokma is Yahuwah's set-apart Ruach among the seven, and known in other passages such as Sirach 24 as the mother of Yasharil. Therefore, the significance of Asenath being tended to by seven virgins shouldn't go unnoticed. Our prayer is expected to center upon a hope or a desire to witness the will of heaven manifested upon the earth, on earth as it is in heaven. It is by no means a far stretch of the imagination to suspect that the only begotten daughter of Elohim is likewise attended to by these seven Ruachoth in heaven. Is that not the point of Yosef and Asenath, to compare Asenath, the only begotten daughter? Well, her and Miriam of Migdal. You're probably wondering then why Miriam of Migdal gets stuck with the seven evil Ruachoth rather than the pure ones. 
I will admit that the seven demons are disturbing. The way in which Luke just throws her under a bus without any further explanation. Marcus commits the same deed in 16.9. He says she had seven demons in her. And what, at what point in Miriam's life were the demons expelled from her? Yocanan speaks nothing of them. I wonder why that is, why that is uh, all things considered. Why doesn't Yocanan bring her up? Because he talks a lot about her. Were the demons expelled after she was, quote-unquote, caught in adultery or beforehand? I'm guessing there were idols among the Roman centurion's possession, which ha would have affected her a great deal. If it's a timetable we're after, she was most likely exercised of her demons a year before the Nard incident, because we have already read that she did not commit the sin of sexual fornication for an entire year leading up to that event. A scene is missing. That's all I'm saying. We, we don't know at what point in her life these demons were expelled. It seems like a pretty important moment. My back appears to be against the wall again. And so I suppose the only thing to do in a sticky situation such as this is to attempt to explain my way out of the briar patch or surrender. Though I've already given away my avenue of, of escape. It derives from the prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Only problem with a prayer such as that one is Mary Mavigdal was not living out the Edenic vision. Her choices would change in time like those of Asenath before her, ultimately making Miriam the very embodiment of penitence, the only begotten daughter of Iliam. The answer to her fallen predicament can be found in another familiar axiom, which I am about to show you. And this comes from uh, the Ascension of Yeshiahu of Isaiah, a book which I really love. And we ascended to the firmament, I and he, and there I saw Samael and his host, and there was great fighting therein, and the angels of Satan were envying one another. And as above, so on the earth also, as above, so below. For the likeness of that which is in the firmament is here on the earth. How fascinating is that? As, as above, so below sounds an awful lot like on earth as it is in heaven. Many others have com commented on their similarity, though they are not the same by any means. Yeshiahu has just taken a jab at the secret societies running our flat, motionless realm, and in doing so revealed a dirty little secret. Simply put, there is chaos upon the earth because the neophyte conforms to the likeness of his master. That's all by design. Order out of chaos is the recipe. The Elohim and unclean Ruachoth ruling from the ether, particularly the prince of the power of the air, that's a Paul quote right there, cannot accept Yahusha's shalom, and so must attempt to wrangle the order they desire out of rebellion, which is the same as saying they are bringing chaos to the Torah of Yahuwah. It's why the human slaves of this world are forced to navigate through a daily gauntlet of intel psyops, hoaxes, and other psychodramatic exercises. The performance witchcraft is intended to mold each willing participant into the image of the beast. Somebody is willing simply by giving, the, somebody is willing simply by giving their consent to be lied to. Think about that. The belief in their operation is where the magic does its work. I have devoted an entire writing career to expanding further upon this and fleshing these details out into practical examples, but some things deserve repeating. The seven unclean Ruachoth who possess Mary Mavigdal is by no means a coincidence, nor is it spiritually insignificant. Commit to a seven demons word search in scripture. Go ahead, give it a try. According to the results I pulled in, she's the only one. The seven unclean Ruachoth were mimicking, I believe, the seven Ruachoth of Elohim in heaven. 
All right, now on page 54, can you believe it? We've made it that far, and the night is ticking on. You will recall that I presented on this the 144,000 in the Daughter of Zion two weeks ago. So why am I including it again? Well, what I didn't tell you last time is that I actually had uh, more to this paper uh, that I excluded because I was waiting. So again, uh, Josh, if you want to scroll ahead all the way down to page 61. See how this works? We just skipped over 10 pages, guys. We're making progress tonight. And because um, I, I don't need to go over that again. If you are, uh, again, I'm sorry. This is just research stacked upon research stacked upon research. And uh, in that presentation, I showed you why in Hebrew Revelation, it makes it very clear that the 144,000 are uh, virgins, uh, virgin women, and that they're the daughters of Zion. All right, so we went through all of that, and it's funny, the reactions, of all the things I talk about, I never know what people are going to have a hard time with. I never know, and that was, uh, <laughs> that really hit a nerve with some people. People were really upset about that one, and it's funny, it's like people get so excited about, oh, there's a Hebrew revelation, we got to open up the book, we got to do studies on it, and as soon as it says that the 144,000 are women, it's like, that's it, close the book, seal them up again, we don't need that in our lives. So anyways, um, on to page uh, 61, uh, all this in context, 144,000 being women, the daughters of Zion, changing gears, but not really. There is another reference to Bethula, and I, as a reminder, the Hebrew word Bethula means virgin, is always referred to referring to women, never men. The first example you see in the Bible is Rivka. She is a Bethula, a young virgin set apart from men and idol worship, set apart from the, the sins of women. Uh, and anyways, so Bethula. There is another reference to Bethula in Scripture, which needs attending, and it refers to the daughter of Zion. Who is the daughter of Zion but the only begotten daughter of Elohim? And who is the only begotten daughter but Mary Mavigdal? Though I'm getting I'm already getting ahead of myself as I so often do. Can you blame me though? The excitement of it all. That is a common character description among the among connected dot specialists. The 144,000, of course, dwell on Zion. I presented that. The real Mount Zion, mind you. And I'm willing to bet they're her handmaidens. Every last one of them. Yes, I saved that for this. I withheld this information from you last time. What I think the 144,000 were doing. I think it's pretty exciting that the idea if they were the handmaids of the betrothed, the Mashiach. Or Mashiach's a woman, I should say. The first scriptural reference that I can find to the daughter of Zion derives from Yeshiahu 37.22. That would be Isaiah again, though I realize now this may require a backstory because I'm not going to read the whole thing. Well, here it is. Somebody named um, uh, Kancheriv, king of Asher, sent uh, uh, Rafshika Raf, ah, to Yerushalayim to surround the city and conquer it. Now, Rafshaki was a haughty fellow. After telling the watchmen on the wall that they would eat their own dung and drink their own piss, he furthermore taunted Yahuwah, the Most High, when claiming that their Elohim could not possibly save them. 
This is all detailed in chapter 36 if you require reading the account for yourself. The whole scene reminds me of something from like Monty Python. When Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem, heard the Assyrian words, he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and then went into the house of Yahuwah. We're in chapter 37 now of Isaiah. I forgot to mention that Rafshaki wrote the king a letter, and in it, he came across like one of those snooty Frenchmen from, well, there it is, from a Monty Python movie. You have to wonder if he had a, <laughs> a, a mustache resembling bicycle handles. Hezekiah read the sephir written to him and then laid it before Yahuwah so that the residents of heaven might also go over the fine prints, which they did. Because here is the response that was given to him regarding the overly flamboyant Rafshaki. This is the word which Yahuwah has spoken concerning him, the virgin, Bethula, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Yerushalayim has shaken her head at you. Who is the daughter of Zion, I wonder? Hmm. It says she's a virgin, uh, Bethula to be precise. Some of you will claim the virgin daughter of Zion is a metaphor. A metaphor for what exactly? That's so nice of Yahuwah to hear of Hezekiah's real-life troubles and then respond with a make-believe answer. He might as well have stated that the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy are laughing at the Syrian army if we are to believe that the daughter of Zion was something he whipped up in the frenzy. I am always trying to think ahead, and some of you will claim the daughter of Zion refers to the Torah obedient. Well, uh, Hezekiah was faithful, and nobody in his party was laughing. No, the scene was in heaven. Perhaps you can claim that the virgin daughter refers to the set apart in heaven, but after everything we've been through, somebody in heaven had the bright idea of reading Rafshika's Sefer out loud, and then everybody overheard the daughter of Zion laughing from her tower. She must be a feisty woman. And then look at what happens immediately afterwards. Then the angel of Yahuwah went forth and smote in the camp a hundred and fourscore and five thousand Assyrians. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. You've heard the one concerning hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Well, this might as well be the origins of that quip. I will remind you that we are peering in upon the very first mention of the virgin daughter of Elohim. The context uh, preceding this event is that she left. While the inhabitants of Jerusalem slept, the angel of Yahuwah annihilated 185,000 Assyrians. They awoke to a field of dead corpses. Do yourself a favor and try not to be a dumbass like Rafshika, so that the daughter of Zion scorns you. Miriam of Migdal comes into this as well because she also was a Bethula, though I haven't even gotten to the good part yet. Including her into the virgin camp will seem confusing to some of you, especially if the hymen is the manner by which one defines the loss of their virginity. We have already learned about how Miriam lost hers. It happened by the way of a Roman centurion. Whether she broke the betrothment and ran off or was raped and decided to make the best of it is an unknown variable. What came of this experience is that she set herself aside for her groomsmen afterwards. That is told to us in the book of the Nazarene. We have already seen the passage, but I'll show it to you again. And it says, Miriam said, Miriam of Megdal, Sire, I have been a sinner, but have not sinned this last year, nor shall I again. 
the book of the Nazarene, 1910. Miriam of Magdal told Yehusha that she had been a sinner, but then on the flip of that coin, she hadn't sinned again in the last year, nor would she again. The sin she is referring to is sex. Some of you are thinking Miriam is disqualified from being a Bethula, but I'm not so convinced that's the case. I know she doesn't say she became a virgin again. You don't have to read between the lines, though, to see that she had separated and secluded herself from having intercourse with men for an entire year afterwards. In that way, she was very much a Bethula. If there ever were any uh, resemblances to Husha's wife, Gomer, uh, Hosea's wife, Gomer, then it ended here. Like Aseneth with Yosef, Miriam sought purity through penitence and was capable of reclaiming it again. The context of her statement, as you will know by now, involves the Nard, the Nard episode. I have stated this repeatedly since the beginning of the investigation that the incident has all the markings of the precursor to a wedding night. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, Yahusha and Marion were by all appearances, intimate during the final week of his life, and it only makes sense that he would be. I have to keep repeating this because uh, people forget. He was being brought into Jerusalem as their declared king on the following day. He rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It was prophesied that he would. The prophecy in question derives from Zechariah, or Zachariahu. Have you read it recently? No. I would highly advise that you do. Go ahead, give it a read. I'll wait. Seriously, you're missing out. Oh, fine. How about I? How about I just show it to you? Just be prepared. Scripture isn't for the faint-hearted, and denominations are designed for people like that. Don't say I didn't warn you. Here it is. And behold, one of the young men from uh, Pentephrae's retinue burst in and said. Wait, hold on. That is... Oh, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay, and behold, one of the young men from Pentef or Potiphar's... I was like, what? Yeah, Potiphar's retinue burst in and said, Lo, Yosef is at the gates of our court. And Asenath quickly left her father and her mother and ran upstairs and went into her room and stood at the big window that looked towards the east so as to see Yosef as he came into her father's house. And Potiphar and his wife and all his relations went out to meet Yosef. That had to be a little bit awkward with Potiphar's wife going out to meet Yosef and marry their daughter. They never talked about the awkwardness of that moment after she had had him, you know, thrown him in jail. And the gates of the court that looked east were opened and Yosef came in sitting in Pharaoh's viceroy chariot. And there were four horses yoked together, white as snow with golden reins, and the chariot was covered over with gold. And Yosef was wearing a marvelous white tunic, and the robe wrapped around him was purple, made of linen, woven with gold. There was a golden crown on his head, and all round the crown were twelve precious stones, and above the stones twelve golden rays. And a royal scepter was in his right hand, and he held an olive branch stretched out, and there was much fruit on it. If that's not messianic, I don't know what is. And Yosef came into the court and the gates were shut. Okay, that wasn't from Zechariah. I even surprised myself. I admit to that part. We're, ba we're back on Yosef and Aseneth again, though if you've hung in with me for this long, and thank you for holding on this long, I know it's been a long night, then you can be certain that we'll swing back around. What I am proposing is that we're gazing in upon an actual scene in the life of the patriarch and his woman, but also that it is a repeated event 
one which prophetically gazes forward towards the day of Mashiach's arrival in Yerushalayim, maybe even uh, the second coming, actually. Yosef's attire isn't simply a physical descriptor either. The purple robe I will get to in a moment, because the 12 precious stones complete with 12 golden rays in the crown is an obvious reference to the 12. They were accompanying Mashiach for his bride. In fact, everything about Yosef's attire is self-explanatory on a spiritual level, which is what I believe both Aseneth and Miriam of Megdal were ultimately perceiving, though you may need a little help with the purple color. So here you see the Shroud of Turin. And supposing you were a part of my presentation or read my End of the Millennial Kingdom paper, then you may recall my defense of the Shroud of Turin. In that defense, I had stated that the body of the man within emitted a short, intense burst of vacuum ultraviolet radiation anywhere from 48 to 72 hours into the burial process, thereby uh, imprinting a perfect photographic negative image. I have read up on the conclusions of these shroud researchers, and what they're saying is nothing short of awe-inspiring. Uh, it has been argued by Italian researcher Paolo di Lazzara that the radiation was ultraviolet, and that the instantaneous burst exceeds the maximum power released by an ultraviolet sources of light available today, greater than anything we have today. It would also require pulses having duration shorter than 140 billionth of a second. The intensities of these pulses would, ha would have to be on the order of several billion watts. His body became mechanically transparent in an instant, emitting light evenly from every three-dimensional point within, thereby imprinting an encoded 3D image on the front and the back of the cloth, as well as an x-ray. This is why the shroud cannot be reproduced in any laboratory. All right, skipping on to the next page, page 67. I even found an instance when Yahusha glowed in the exact manner which has been described for us by the shroud researchers. Okay, so the theme here is purple, all right, ultraviolet. The following day, Yehusha took Kepha, Yaakov, and Yochan, and three of his of the apostles to a cave high up on the mountainside where they remained in meditation for three days. On the third day, while seated in the cave, the others saw the whole body of Yehusha exude a light and become radiant, the colors being blue and white. They were astonished at such an inflow of power, for no other body could have contained it, though manifesting it, though manifesting in them also is much weaker. The three with Yahusha covered their eyes before the brilliance. And Yochanan said, Master, while the Ruach HaKadosh manifests in us as no more than a faint blue glow, seen only in total darkness, your brilliance is like that of the sun compared with the palest glow. And Kepha said, it is good for us to have seen this, for now we know how poorly we compare with you. Ultraviolet isn't the same as blue, you will tell me. Yeah, well, UV waves aren't ex exactly visible to the naked eye either. Blue is. Yahushua's disciples could only describe what they were capable of seeing. Being more brilliant than the sun compared with the palest star is saying something. That is while he was living, mind you. There is nothing in the textbooks which would describe how a dead man can accomplish his task, other than the shroud. And then, of course, we see in the um, Genesis Targum, uh, Genesis 3-7, I've covered this so many times now, but you know how I have to cover my bases. And the eyes of both were enlightened, and they knew that they were naked, divested of the purple robes. All right. So just to go over this really quickly, I don't need to read all this. The, the I my what I put forward is that the purple robes that Abin and Chua were wearing that they were uh, derobed of was the Ruach HaKadosh. Right. This is their glorious glowing bodies This is a purple ultraviolet. Right. That the light. All right. So I'm going to skip down to 
uh, the bottom of page 68 here, uh, chapter 19. And, and then look what happens when Yosef finally comes for Aseneth, all right? And, of course, he's wearing the purple robes. And I'm saying that this is a uh, putting forth the idea that this is Mashiach, right, coming for his bride. And a little slave came and came and said to Aseneth, Lo, Yosef is at the gate of our court. And Aseneth went down with the seven virgins to meet him. And when Yosef saw her, he said to her, Come to me, pure virgin, for I have had good news about you from heaven, explaining everything about you. And Yosef stretched his hand out and embraced Aseneth, and Aseneth embraced Yosef, and they greeted each other for a long time and received new life in their Ruach. And Aseneth said to him, Come, my Adonai, come into my house. And she took his right hand and brought him inside her house. And Yosef sat down on her father uh, Potiphar's seat, and, and she brought water to wash his feet. And so there's another connection right there. And Yosef said to her, Let one of your virgins come and let her wash my feet. And Aseneth said to him, No, my Adonai, for my hands are your hands, and your feet are my feet, and no one else shall wash your feet. And so she had her way and washed his feet. And Yosef took her by the right hand and kissed it, and Asneth kissed his hand, or his head. I said, look at what happens, and I meant it. Yosef arrives for Asneth, prompting an immediate foot-washing episode. How many times do feet get washed in scripture, I wonder? There are a few instances, such as Abraham and the three visiting angels and Beersheath. The announcement of Yitchak came out of that episode. All in all, foot-washing sightings are extremely rare to come by. The similarities between Yosef and Aseneth and Yehusha and Miriam are certainly difficult to overlook, though. Yosef's quip about, about having heard good news concerning her directly from heaven may even be applied to Yehusha with his betrothed. Did his father and mother let him in on her true identity? It seems the cat is out of the bag with his triumphant entry prophecy. So here we go with uh, Zechariah, or Zechariahu. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation and having Yeshua, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the fowl of an ass. Everybody loves to quote the passage regarding the king and his colt, and I don't blame them. The king has a name, and it's Yehusha, or Yeshua. But then when was the last time that you heard about the daughter of Zion rejoicing at his arrival? We've spent an entire lifetime skimming right over that part, thinking it was another syrupy metaphor for one thing or another, like a people group, when in fact the king was coming for her. Oh, what do you know? That's the end of it right there. And I finished in two hours. Incredible. All right. Well, hopefully you guys are still hanging in there with me. It looks like we still have a crowd. I haven't had everyone abandon me yet. Um, <clears throat> that's it. I made it through it. My voice is getting shot. Um, and um, this, of course, I'm going to be releasing this book, and it has a lot more details on uh, the Only Begotten Daughter, making those connections with Mary Magdalene. That was a, a taste. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you saw the connections. Just to give my quick analysis of what I think is happening, if I had to guess... Uh, because it is on earth as it is in heaven, or as above, so below, uh, depending on what side of the light or the darkness you're on. I suspect that um, that uh, there may have been something that happened 
with the only daughter of Elohim in heaven, that that I believe was the pre-existent Mary Magdalene. That shouldn't be hard for anyone to, uh, shouldn't catch anyone off guard. We went over that a couple months ago, that Yehusha HaMashiach was pre-existent, and that uh, Yaakov was pre-existent, and uh, many others, and pre-existence is a thing. It's talked about. We're all pre-existent, right? So I have a, my conclusions, the best that I can come up with is that something happened to the only begotten daughter of Elohim in heaven. Uh, there was some sort of, something happened that caused her to have to repent of, let's put it that way. And um, when she came to the earth, we see that as above, so below, that Mary of Migdal went through the same process of sinning and having to repent, becoming the very embodiment of penitence, of returning to Mashiach and being forgiven of her sins and being a model of that. So that is my conclusion. I'm opening up to the room. Let me know your thoughts. Yeah, Katie, just, uh, yeah, so Katie asked a question. Is the book of the Nazarene the only text that mentions Miriam's, uh, Miriam with the centurion? She asked rape by the centurion. It is the only book that mentions a centurion. It doesn't say he raped her. We don't know what happened. It says that she made the best of the situation, basically. It says She says she chose love. So something happened. She no longer had her virginity. We don't know if he seduced her, if he raped her what happens, but she ended up going with him. Her father throws her out as a result. Then the centurion leaves her because he's already married to another woman and now she's out on her own. And that is why that, you know, I believe that she was already betrothed to Messiah beforehand. And the, the betrothment was off and I think it was back on again. He forgave her of her sins. She was pure for him, set aside for him. He brings her back in, and that's the story. That's our story, guys. The story people have such a hard time understanding this, but it's like it's just like Hosea all over again. It is our story. Well, I've just got to say that uh, as long as I've been here, of all the papers that I have heard you read, the PDFs and go through all the studies, this one was the most fascinating and uh, the least amount of mistakes and errors and. It was just spot on, and I absolutely loved it. I was just enthralled by the whole thing from beginning to end, and I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you, John. That's quite the compliment. And, uh, you know, I, I, I never know how people are going to respond. And, um, you know, I never know. I know at some point in my life I'm going to be taken out to the cliffside and stoned, and after I'm stoned I will then be hurled off the cliff to the rocky tide below. Um you know, to be taken out during high tide. Uh, I don't know if it, you know, I never know which presentation it's going to be. So it's always nice to hear that. Thank you. No, I just have to thank you because literally I'm always laughing in tears of joy um, with your comedy, but also in the harsh realities that you uh, say throughout your entire commentary. And um I, I posted in the general chat because I kind of figured out how to do the, the chat with the listening. So I'm like making hamburgers for all three children at different times during your presentation. And my son's like, mom, why is that so slow? Can't you speed it up again? Because I always listen to your stuff in like 2x. And that's just how my brain works. My brain works better when it's sped up. 
And I'm like, no, this is live. I have to listen to it like this. You have to like think about it. And he's like, what? <laughs> anyway, um, it's just such a joy. And yes, like the Joseph and Asimus story, that has resonated with me. I even like I typed it out and I've read it and then I recorded it and then I changed. So you changed the names, but I also changed the names and I changed it from Joseph to Yeshua. And I allocated Yeshua as Joseph in the story of us and then went through a different repentance area of that and then shared it with a few friends. And they were like, whoa, we've never even heard of this. We don't know what this is. And I'm like, I know I'd never heard of it either. Um, but it's brought people into the conversation of like, wow, this is a story that's like so deep that I can share with people. And like, especially the moms and the women that I know um, is usually who I'm sharing it with, but they just resonate with that story so deeply. Even if I don't tell them anything and I just give them the PDF, every single time the person is like, I, I don't even know what to do with this. This is amazing. Can we have, can we go get coffee? Can we have a conversation? So um, I do encourage people to share this stuff with others. Like if the Ruach is putting it on your heart, share it with someone because you never know who's going to be like deeply needing that story and like see what the Ruach wants you to see through it and who's not. So what you're saying is, is that your children think I sound like a chipmunk. <laughs> No, you don't sound like a chickmuck on one and a half or two X, not at all, or at least not to me, but maybe um, because I did grow up with Alvin, Simon and Theodore, right? I'm, I don't know. My brain just moves too fast, but my, my brain moves fast, but my comprehension is much slower. That's why I have to print out everything and then take notes and like do it nice and slow with dictation and scriptures. And, you know, six months later, I might understand your joke <laughs> and uh interestingly enough um I, I i should write a little bit of commentary on the chosen i haven't yet because i haven't sat down to watch it but i've heard some very interesting things from the chosen and katie pointed out that in the chosen she was raped by a roman centurion where they're getting that information from i don't know but knowing that that could Compliment the book of the Nazarene. That's really interesting. Now, I'm not going to take that as scripture, but I would like to know where they're getting that information from, that they decided that she was raped by a Roman. Secondly, from the um, the Chosen, I think it's the same series, they claim that the demon who possessed her was named Lilith. Okay, so think about this. Who was Lilith? Lilith was the uh, the first wife of Adam. Now, I, I say that to clarify for clarification, that's according to Jewish mythology, all right? I don't know if Lilith was the first wife of Adam or not. I don't know. I do believe that Lilith is a real spirit. It's in, in, Lilith is a mother of demons, okay? And, and I do believe that Lilith does produce demons. I think that there's enough writings out there for me to conclude, to at least highly to have you know, some sort of conclusion on that. And so... It's interesting that if Yahushua is modeling a second Adam and then the demon that's possessing her is Lilith, I just, you know, and then if, uh, if it's true that Mary Magdalene, the tower is you know, the church is the mother 
um, in that way and had, you know, children of her own, so on and so forth, uh, you know, spiritual children. It's just, it's interesting. It's really interesting what they put out there in The Chosen. And I can't really comment more on that because I haven't seen the series. I've just heard some very well, fascinating things about it. Katie and I were talking about it because I had never seen it till I visited Katie and I sat down and watched the first two seasons and I was just totally blown away. And then I'm halfway through the book of the Not Serene, and and I told Katie, I think it was yesterday or maybe the day before, I was like, you know, I said, have she she told me she hadn't started reading it yet, and I said, you got to read it, you know. I and I think from what she said to me earlier, she has already picked it up and started reading. I said, you know, whoever whoever did the Chosen has read the the Gospel of uh, Kaleidi or the books books of the Not Serene because it, it's just so close. And I haven't seen season three, but in the in the chosen Mary Magdalene, while she's possessed, uh, it 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 wasn't that she was possessed by a demon named Lilith. It that was her name. She went by Lilith. Everyone knew her as Lilith, and it wasn't that it changed to Mary or Miriam until after uh, she was delivered from from what possessed her. So it, it's just fascinating. I I I think that they did read the 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 gospel of uh Kaleidi, it, they had to have i mean it's just there's so much in there that i mean when i'm reading the the books of the Nazarene, i'm picturing the chosen it's so bizarre wow i haven't watched the chosen but i might and then based off of some of the the teachings of a girlfriend of mine um who grew up in um the religion of um what is it um Mormonism. A lot of my friends keep telling me, like, Stephanie, you sound like you're a Mormon with some of the ideas and thoughts that I've like presented with this feminine ruach and a couple of other things. Um, and so I've asked her, and almost everything that you've taught about, Noel, or that you've written in here that I've I've researched as well, is also in Mormonism, which is an interesting um religion and or cult. My bestie would agree that it was definitely cultish which is why she became a christian because she was like i got to get out of this like this is not good i know yeshua is good but whatever this religion is this is bad um and so she's one of my biggest supporters with doing sabbath and doing the holy days um i think because she actually has this like really deep understanding of scripture and of the power of some of these scriptures that we don't know of yet that aren't in our 66 canon right so like she's open to the fact that maybe some of these extra books really do have truth to tell um she's in that murky water because she knows all of those mormon books um but oftentimes she's like wow yeah we we learned about that or i already know about that i'm like i've never heard of it <laughs> That's the first I've ever heard that uh, Mormonism teaches that there's a feminine uh, Holy Spirit. Is, is that what you said? Yes. Uh, a feminine Holy Spirit, that there is a daughter as well as a son, that, that Yeshua had a sister, um, and that there is a mother as well. There's some other things. Um, her family was very rich and really high up in Mormonism, I guess. Um, so they, they come from like money. So they, she also comes from like the higher up teachings that aren't taught to most people. So, um, yeah, these sort of, um, ideas are really, they really resonate with her. Uh, granted, um, she's 
like in her 60s now. And so coming to Torah and coming to Sabbath uh, has actually been a really big struggle because she went from this high up Mormonism to now Christianity, sort of evangelical Christianity to now like, wait a minute, I think this whole Sabbath thing is real. The whole Bible might be true, but she's like having a really hard struggle with how do I now transition a third time <laughs> with my family? Um, but we're walking through it. Well, that's, that's the thing about the truth is that you, you kind of have to keep moving um, in some ways or else you get stagnant. And I'm not saying that you, we never hit the mark, right? Like, I, I, for me, the, tor the Torah is the end of the road. Um, but, you know, there were things that brought me into the truth movements uh, that I no longer think are accurate. But they, they, you know, woke me up and they brought me into it. And you know, that happens, you know, you got to, you know, just move around and be uncomfortable. So but I can understand that. I love it.